Welcome to the Well Community Jokes. If you have your Bibles and want to follow along, we're going to be reading from the book of Titus, chapter 2. Uh, it's going to be on the screen for those who uh, don't have a Bible with them, because um, that's just what we do at the well as well. But uh, the Bible app, too, is also a great, great resource to be able to follow along. But Titus 2, starting in verse 11, says, For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. These, then, are the things you should teach. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. And as Chris alluded to right at the very beginning, today is Star Wars Day. And it's a day uh, observed by fans for, by the media franchise. And uh, it started as this grassroots celebration because it plays on the whole, may the force be with you, may the fourth be with you. But I'm not going to lie. If you know me already, you know that I don't know anything about Star Wars. I, I, I don't know. I, I'll be careful how, how strongly worded I <laughs> But the only thing I really knew about Star Wars growing up was I knew Chewbacca because my brother called me that in high school when I started slicking my hair back. He's like, hey, Chewie. I'm like, who's Chewbacca? Quick Google search then showed me who that was. But you know what? There's people who know of Star Wars, like myself, but then there's people who know Star Wars. And I feel like I might be in the midst of several of those people. But tonight we're continuing our series on gospel fluency because, again, there's this, this sense of there's so many of us who know the gospel or know of the gospel, but then there's another way of actually knowing the gospel. And my hope throughout this whole series of gospel fluency is to take these gospel truths that we learned throughout our Alpha series and to really integrate them and apply them to our lives so that we know the gospel and it just overflows out of everything we say and think and do. I want us to become fluent in the gospel so that it touches everything that we touch. Now, we might know that the gospel saves us from our sins. We might think about the gospel as we arrive here on the weekend. But many of us aren't fluent in the gospel. And I think it's partly due to we don't know how it actually speaks into our everyday life situations. We kind of know how to keep it separate for church but how does it actually influence and speak to our everyday situations? So I want to revisit the question that I brought up last week, which is, what is the gospel? And if you missed last week, check out our podcast or go on YouTube and search for um, the Rend Collective, The Good News Story. And they have a clever way of explaining what the gospel is. However, the, the word gospel literally means good news. So what's the good news of the Christian faith? In the biblical text that we just 
read and that we're going to be kind of settling in on and looking at tonight, the Apostle Paul writes, Our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own. This is an excellent summation of the gospel. Jesus gave himself for us when he died on the cross, redeeming us, purifying us, so that we could be welcomed into his family. And here's another definition that I've kind of stolen and tweaked a bit from Tim Keller. Through the person and work of Jesus Christ, God fully accomplishes salvation for all who believe, rescuing us from judgment for sin into fellowship with him and restoring the creation so we can enjoy the gift of new life together with him forever. So I want to break this down and just make a few important observations. And the first one is that the gospel is all about Jesus. More specifically, the gospel declares that Jesus is Christ or King, the King of the world. The gospel, therefore, isn't so much about good advice, but it rather is good news that Jesus is in charge, that the kingdom has begun, that he defeated the power of evil and opened the door to eternal life. So secondly, the gospel is about salvation. The gospel acknowledges that, that we've all sinned, we've all fallen short, and that sin is serious stuff, making us deserving of eternal separation from God. But when we turned away from our sin and toward Jesus, we were saved. That, that's this whole idea of repentance, turning away. It's about salvation. Because the judgment for our sin was literally placed on Jesus when he died on the cross. So then the gospel is about fellowship. We've been invited into God's embrace so that we can imp- approach him as our loving father. We're invited into the, the family. We can get to know him personally in a caring and communicative relationship. But the gospel is also about restoration. The entire creation will be restored into the coming together of a new heaven and a new earth. And in that perfect place that will enjoy him and his children, one another, forever. And the gospel is about grace. The way we enter into this salvation, into this relationship and restoration with King Jesus is an absolutely free gift that we merely accept. It's not by works that we're saved by grace. It's a gift we don't deserve. Which leads me to my last observation, which is the gospel is about faith. This is how we personally appropriate the gospel. It's not by good works. It's not because of our performance. We simply trust that Jesus did it. Now, it's the last point that's very important because many times... We as Christians don't think as if we're saved by grace through faith. We think as our society does. We're influenced by by society, by social media. And we're influenced that our performance determines our worth to God. So often Christians don't speak as if they're saved through grace, by grace through faith. We speak as if our value and our the value of others is tied to what we do and what they do. And because we don't think and speak the gospel fluently, oftentimes Christians don't act like they're saved by grace through faith. We act as if we have to behave this certain way and 
If we don't, then we don't matter to God. And so what comes out of us doesn't reflect this gospel of grace. It's, it's like we're speaking Spanglish, where you have this unholy mixture of the gospel combined with something else. So what else is mixed in? There's a couple things I want to look at for this. First, there's moralism. Now, I'm not talking about morality, which is a good thing. It's good to be moral, of course. There's morals that we hold to and adhere to and, and want to teach our kids. But what I'm talking about is moralism. It's a system of thought where we try to earn God's love and forgiveness by doing good things. So here's the working definition of moralism. Through the good work that I perform, I may earn salvation from sin and be rescued from judgment so I can enjoy a new life together with him forever. Now, if you look at it carefully, you'll notice that moralism has some aspects that are similar to Christianity built into it. There's this common belief of sin and judgment and a common belief in, in eternal life. If I'm a good person, then that's all that matters. But I want you to notice that moralism doesn't require Jesus. In moralism, Jesus isn't the Savior. I am. It's based on how, how well I've done. Now, you can usually tell if someone's bought into the myth of moralism because it leads to one of two things. It either leads to pride or it leads to despair. And pride is like, okay, I'm doing pretty good. I'm a good person, I'm better than those people, so I can walk with my head held high. Or despair is if you're not very good at doing th these things, and you're like, oh man, I am not doing well. And so the outcomes of morality are very different than the outcomes of what the gospel produces. Because the gospel should lead us to a humble confidence and what I mean is that we become more humble because we know that it's not me that saved my soul. This is all about Jesus. And then it leads to this quiet confidence because we've been invited into this relationship with the Father who knows everything about me and still chooses to love me. That should give us confidence. So it's something to watch out for. And I'm stealing the term that uh, Pastor Steve at Gateway used, he, he merged the two together and calls it gospel-oralism, where you mix the gospel and moralism together. And he says it's an ugly mixture of gospel and moralism, an unholy cocktail of grace and legalism. So we need to learn how to speak the pure gospel of grace in the way that we think, the way that we speak, the way that we act. But there's another system of thinking that often gets mixed in with grace. And this one has devastating results as well. And it's the system of relativism. This is probably the prevailing worldview of the 21st century. And here's the working definition. If there is a God, he accepts everyone into fellowship with him no matter what. So we can enjoy the gift of new life forever. So as you can probably see, relativism also has some points of connection with the gospel. There's the promise of fellowship with God, relationship with him, if there is one, and the hope of eternal life. But notice, there's no such thing as sin. 
And so in relativism, if there's no such thing as sin, then there's no such, no such need for a savior because everybody's already saved. And because relativism is so prevalent in our culture, because everything goes, you make up your spirituality. Because that's the worldview of our age, we have to be careful ourselves not to speak this mixture of gospelativism, an unholy combination of grace and license, where it doesn't really matter to God what we do, when there's no such thing as sin. So throughout this series, I want us to learn how to apply grace to different situations and relationships and struggles that we just face in life, like Paul does in his letter to his friend Titus. So you'll see in verses 11 and 12, Paul writes, For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us. And I think this is an important line here that shouldn't be missed, that the the grace of God needs to be our teacher. It teaches us how to think. It teaches us how to speak. It teaches us how to act. And so we need to become a student of the grace of God. To become gospel fluent, we must become students of grace. But I want to back up a little bit to the start of this chapter to actually walk through how Paul uses this gospel of grace to teach Titus. So Titus is a pastor who needs to know how to lead his church along the path of grace to become more gospel fluent. So Paul writes in the first two verses, Titus 2, 1 and 2, teach the older men to be temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled, and sound in faith, in love, and in endurance. So one of the challenges that we have when we read the epistles like this is that we're jumping into the middle of a conversation. Paul knows Titus We can only assume they've probably been writing letters back and forth, but this is the only one that we have. So we don't know the exact situation of what's going on in Titus's church. So we have to kind of pick up the clues and piece together what's happening here. So what's going on? Paul writes, teach the older men to be temperate. And so it looks like some of the older guys in the church who are struggling with drinking too much. And the result of that is that they're losing respect nobody's respecting them because they don't have self-control. And when you don't have self-control, it it means you're putting yourself first. You're choosing your own self-medication rather than looking toward others or looking towards Christ. So then, because they don't have this self-control, they're not growing in faith. They're not flourishing in their marriage and with their kids. And so, They're in need of the faith, love, and endurance that only God can give us by his spirit. But if we back up a little bit more and ask what's really happening here, I think they're mixing a little too much relativism in with the gospel. They're getting too lax on sin. They're engaging in things that don't honor God, and they're not confessing and repenting of this behavior. Of course, there's nothing more miserable than a Christian who's stuck in sin. I can attest to that myself. So Paul tells Titus to teach them how to live in a way that's consistent with the gospel of grace. Because when you know how much you've been saved from and what lengths Jesus went to pay for your freedom, you're not going to want to get sucked back in 
to the slavery of drunkenness. You're going to want to be sober. You're going to want to be alert, in control, right mind, focused, intentional. And I just want to clarify, though, that I don't believe this is calling for a prohibition, though, either. What I mean is that I think this has a lot to say about anything that can control us. Porn, cannabis, video games, shopping, gossiping, our phones. I really can't stand that they've put on our phone how much screen time you watch now and you get a weekly report. I, I'll admit that I've been averaging over five hours a day on my phone, on my weekly report that I get. And that's down from what it first was. But I'll leave that alone because those are some topics for another day. But Paul continues in his letter, and it looks like the older women had the same problem. He writes in Titus 2.3, Likewise, teach the older women to be reverent in the way they live, not to be slanderers or addicted to much wine, but to teach what is good. So again, you can see how, how Paul's applying the, the gospel directly to the specific life situations that they're facing in their local church. Paul wants the older women to be good examples to the younger women in the church, and that's why he continues on. And he says, by looking at them, the younger men, women will know how to love their husbands and children, be virtuous and pure, keep a good house, be good wives. We don't want anyone looking down on God's message because of their behavior. And I switched to the message translation for that. But you see, Paul knows that one of the greatest ways that we can witness to the goodness of God is by having strong marriages, by having solid families, by having marriages where spouses are serving one another in stable, loving homes. And he continues, similarly, encourage the young men to be self-controlled. In everything, set them an example by doing what is good. In your teaching, show integrity, seriousness, and soundness of speech that cannot be condemned so that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. Again, Paul's taking the gospel and applying it to the specific group of people and to a specific problem. The older people seem to have a problem with booze. The younger guys seem to have trouble controlling their tongues. But notice how the gospel of grace should inform the way we speak. We don't gossip. We don't slander. We're careful with our joking. Why? Because we've been forgiven of so much ourselves that we want to season our words with the salt of grace. So Paul keeps going. And he says, because the gospel teaches even those who are slaves, he writes this, teach slaves to be subject to their masters and everything, to try to please them, not to talk back to them, not to steal from them, but to show that they can be fully trusted so that in every way they will make the teaching about God our Savior attractive. So reading between the lines a little, we suspect that the slaves in Titus church were stealing from their masters and eroding the opportunity to actually share this good news that they have. But don't read this and think Paul was pro-slavery. Because Paul told slaves to go and get their freedom if they could. Slavery, as we all know, is a terrible thing. And the whole trajectory of the Bible moves away from enslavement and moves toward freedom for all people. But Paul wasn't speaking here to slave owners. He was speaking to the slaves directly. He wanted them to speak the pure gospel of grace. 
to, to have this gospel fluency so that their masters would be attracted to the good news of Jesus. He was calling them to, to step up and, and own it and live out their faith as well and have it come out naturally. And now we arrive back where we started with verse 11. And Paul writes, For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. Again, I want to point out that the grace of God teaches us. It teaches us to be the kind of people that God wants us to be. Grace moves us away from moralism. And it wrenches us away from relativism. Grace points us away from legalism. And it steers us away from this free license. The grace of God teaches us how to live. And it's not just something we, we pull out when we come to church. It has something that informs the way we live every aspect of our lives. It transforms the way we speak, the way we think, the way we act. But the catch is that we must be teachable. Because to become gospel fluent, we need to become students of God's grace. We must allow his grace to teach us. So if you want to learn how to become more fluent in the gospel, I believe there's four important questions that we can ask in everyday life situations. And we're going to ask them throughout this series. And they are, who is God, Jesus? Secondly, what has he done or what is he doing? Third, who are we in light of his work? And fourth, how should we live in light of who we are? So in our text, we've seen that the Apostle Paul applies grace to every person's life and into every relationship, to the older guys, the younger guys, women, young and old, even slaves. So it starts by asking the question, who is God? And Paul says in verse 11, For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. So God's graceful. He's full of mercy. He wants only what's best for us. That's who God is. So then we ask, well, what has God done for us? Paul talks about, in verses 13 and 14, Jesus Christ who gave himself for us to redeem us. God has given us this free gift. He's redeeming us. He's, he's paid the price for us to be free from the slavery of sin. So then we ask, who are we in light of his works? Paul writes in verse 14, we're a people that are his very own. We're those who are dearly, dearly loved, precious sons and daughters of God. So then we finally ask, how should we live in light of who we are? Again, Paul has the answer. He speaks about God's children as those who should be eager to do what's good. And so this means that older men and women should be self-controlled and alert, not self-medicated and buzzed most of the time. This means that young men show discipline in the way they talk. It means that slaves don't steal from their masters. You see, the gospel is a great teacher, but are we teachable? Because to become gospel fluent, we must become students of God's grace. So for the last bit of my message tonight, I just want to take the spirit of Paul's writing to, to Titus. And I want to try and address a couple of real life situations and see if we can learn to become more gospel fluent 
in the gospel of grace. So I want to start by addressing the problem where Christians are thinking and speaking and acting in a way that I'm calling gospel gospelativism, where we mix the gospel with relativism. We've already seen that this is what Paul's addressing in his letter to Titus. But how do we allow the relativistic thinking of the world, that lawless, that there's no such thing as sin, do whatever you want, attitude infect our lives? So I want to give you an example, and I'm pretty sure if you think about it, you can come up with several of your own. But have you ever heard someone come up to you and apologize for something that they did against you? And what do we as Canadians do? It's such a Canadian thing to do. We say, no problem, no big deal, no worries, that's fine. But when we're saying that, we're actually just minimizing their sin. We're robbing them of the opportunity to experience grace. This isn't the gospel. The gospel actually doesn't minimize sin. The gospel says that Jesus died for our sins. The gospel says that we need to come clean and live in light with the wrong things we've done. But a quick, no problem, no worries. When someone admits they've sinned against us, it sounds nice, but it's not the gospel. That's, that's relativism creeping in, where there's no need for sin and there's no need for a savior. Last year, I was at a denominational event, and a person came up to me and actually asked, can we talk? And I knew this person wasn't very happy with me, so I was a little tentative and nervous, but I decided to go grab a coffee. And we sat down at a table, and they surprised me by saying, I owe you an apology. They said, I've been mad at you, and I've been holding it against you for the past year, but would you forgive me? They explained why they were upset with me, and instead of letting the gospel inform my response at that moment, I did the Canadian thing that no worries, I get it. And I actually do this a lot. I, I try and minimize my own and other people's shortcomings, partly so it's not awkward. I don't know, that's, maybe that's part of the Canadian thing, but what I should have said was something like, thanks, I forgive you. I didn't need to hear that, but I appreciate it. Instead, I brushed off the sin and And it sounded nice and Christian, but in retrospect, I realized that it was just the gospel mixed in with relativism. And Alex has actually helped me see this one because she explains that she teaches in class and two kids get into an argument with each other. She'll have them apologize. And usually it goes, the one kid says, hey, I'm sorry. And the other one's like, yeah, no worries. Like, it's not a problem. And Alex will say, no, it was a problem. But... Like, help them to actually say, but I can forgive you. And I think that's what we're being called out to. I think that's where we need to to remember what we have to offer people. There's so many ways we can learn to be fluent in the gospel. So the other problem is with the, the mixture of the gospel and moralism. How do we get sucked into legalistic thinking? How do we speak the language of religiosity? Or how does this notion that we're only as valuable as our performance creep into our lives? And it's actually creeping in quite easily. I've been disturbed lately by some of the conversations Amanda will hear 
as she goes into supply teach. And she'll hear kids in grade two and three talking about politics and the dumb different sides of, of the fence. And it's crazy, but it makes me realize that, you know what, we actually all struggle with this. Because how often do we say, that dumb person cut me off? Or we complain that, yeah, the stupid government's wasting all of our money. Or we have conversations like, my senseless employee, my teacher's a moron. There's a lot of the myth of moralism in these conversations. It's almost as if we believe that what people really need is to perform a little better in order for them to be worthwhile human beings. But as we know, that's not the gospel. What does the gospel say about people that annoy us? Well, let's run it through the four questions. First, who's God? He's a loving father for the stupid people too. Stupid people like me. <laughs> Second, what did God do? The gospel says that we're all sinners to an equal degree. That we all deserved eternal separation from God in a place called hell. But then Jesus died for us and took all of our punishment so that we could go free. So the gospel says that the problem with people isn't that they're stupid and need to smarten up. The problem is that they're sinners and they, they need a savior. See how the four questions help us speak the gospel more fluently? We can kind of remove the stupidity from the equation and realize just their need for a savior. Because really, when you overhear someone having this stupid people conversation, imagine asking, would you be happy if these stupid people just stopped being stupid? <laughs> Is that what would fix the problem? Or do they need Jesus? Do these people need to be smartened up? Or do they need to be saved? So then the third question is, what does this tell me about who I am? The gospel says that I was loved and worth a lot to God while I was still a sinner. And that includes everybody, even the guy who cut me off. And when I can continue to remind myself of these things, you continue to have so much more compassion, empathy, and grace. So the final question of what do I do in light of all of this? My hope is the answer is obvious, is that we have a responsibility to love people, to pray for them, because they need a savior. What should I do? Maybe I should speak about my own issues and failings and challenges more than I complain about others. I should remember that God loved this sinful person before I point the finger anywhere else. So this is one example where we mix the gospel with something else. We mix it with moralism, where we imply that a person's worth is tied to their performance. And I just have to thank God that he didn't treat me that way. That he didn't say that if you perform, then I'll love you. I thank God because he saved me by grace alone, through faith alone. So are we living in the wonder of the gospel every moment of every day. I know it's challenging. I'll admit that, no, I'm not. But man, when I actually step back and go through these four questions, I'm amazed that we've been so blessed by God. And it actually fills me with gratitude for salvation. And my prayer is that through this series, that I too will even develop this gospel fluency and this gratitude that it will just bleed out 
into my everyday conversations. I want it to literally break my heart for those who are outside the kingdom. I think we can come with a humble confidence into these conversations and demonstrate that we're grateful for what God's done for us. So my prayers for the next several weeks is that we learn how to become more fluent in the gospel so that we'll continue to make Jesus known so that lives and communities will be transformed.